You're listening to audio from Mercy Hill Church of Port Austin. To learn more about us, you can visit mercyhillpa.org. Our vehicles are the safest they've ever been. We have advanced home security systems. Our phones can tell us the exact location of, of everyone that we love at any moment. We have access to Whole Foods and poison-free household cleaners. And we have medicine for nearly every ailment under the sun. And yet we are one of the most fearful and anxious societies in the history of humanity. You ever thought about that? Why is that? Why is it that we are in such a bubble-wrapped, cushioned society, and yet we are more terrified than we've ever been? We're more anxious than we've ever been. Michael Reeves makes the compelling argument from Scripture that the reason for this culture of fear that we live in today is because we have abandoned the fear of the Lord. He says the fear of God was a happy and healthy fear that shaped and controlled other fears, reigning in anxiety. He continues to argue that we're living in the fearful legacy of atheism. He says atheism sold the idea that if you liberate people from belief in God, that will liberate them from fear. But he continues, it should be clear, even to the most vision impaired mole, (laughs) that throwing off the fear of God has not made our society happier and less fretful. Even modern-day atheists and humanists agree that we are living in a culture of fear today, and they are somewhat perplexed by it. They call it the paradox of a safe society. They don't understand it. We, we have all this cushion, all this safety, all this technology, all this knowledge, and yet we're more terrified today than we've ever been. That's why political candidates are now using fear as a tactic to get you to vote for them. Because it works. That's why news outlets are pumping out fear every single day. Because they know you're afraid and they are preying on that fear to get you to click on the headlines. Everybody recognizes this culture of fear today. And we're, we're realizing that modern technology doesn't take that away. What people are failing to recognize is that we are creatures living on a created world that is designed and ordered by a creator. And we can pretend all we want that God doesn't exist. We can pretend, but the knowledge of him is weaved into the very fabric of everything around us. And until we know and fear him rightly, we will never be free from fear. To quote Reeves again, the loss of the fear of God is what ushered in our modern age of anxiety. But the fear of God is the ready antidote to our fretfulness. And this is why the book of Proverbs says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of knowledge. It's the beginning of wisdom. This is what Proverbs is trying to tell us, that our fears have made us foolish and fretful, but there's a greater fear that can make us wise. We've been working through the prologue in the the book here in Proverbs 1, 1 through 7, and we first looked at wisdom's description in those first six verses, and we said that wisdom is ultimately skill and the art of godly living that is revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. Wisdom is what you do when the rule books don't apply. Wisdom is being competent in the realities of life. Wisdom is being hit with a situation where there's, there's no specific step that you can take that's going to tell you exactly what to do in that moment, but you've been growing in wisdom and you know because of your wisdom that God has given you what to do in that situation. That's wisdom's description. It has words like discernment and insight and knowledge. And and it's just an awesome picture. And we see it perfectly displayed in Jesus. Next, we looked at wisdom's invitation, verses 5 through 6. That this is an invitation repeated throughout the book. And that it's open to all. Anyone can come. 
enter into a relationship with wisdom and grow in becoming truly wise. And again, this ultimately happens through a relationship with Jesus Christ where we follow him, the wisdom of God, on the path to wisdom. So we've seen wisdom's description and we've seen wisdom's invitation. The final element, the final introductory sermon in this book of Proverbs is wisdom's condition in verse 7. If you want to look at it, Proverbs 1-7, it says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And I call it wisdom's condition because if you do not fear the Lord, you will never be wise. That's what the book is saying. And this is the motto, this is the main theme of the book of Proverbs. Every commentator I have in my library agrees, this is the main theme of Proverbs. You need to get this if you're going to get the wisdom that's contained in this book. We see this phrase, fear of the Lord, explicitly stated a total of 14 times, this exact phrase. And we see other phrases of fearing God and fearing the Lord, and we see its implications in every single verse. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, like the ABCs are the beginning of reading. You can start, you can't start without it, and you can't keep going without it. Okay, so you don't just say, all right, fear the Lord, check, now I move on to greater things. No, you say, I need to fear the Lord as the foundation if I'm ever going to be wise, and I need to continually fear the Lord. And so we're going to scratch the surface of it today. But as we look at these subject studies in the coming weeks, they're all going to be just undergirded and wrapped in and weaved through with the fear of the Lord, because otherwise we'll never be truly wise. Kidner calls it the first and controlling principle of wisdom. In other words, it's not something you graduate from. It's something you need every moment of your life to truly walk in wisdom. And so that leads to some important questions. What exactly is the fear of the Lord? And in what way is it the beginning of wisdom? I studied all the occasions in Proverbs specifically where this is mentioned. And and as I was studying this throughout the book, there were several themes that emerged. The fear of the Lord is compared to knowing God. It's compared to living humbly before him. It's compared to trusting him. It's, it's described as hating evil and submitting to God and so much more. And so what I did is I looked at this long list of categories. I had every verse on the fear and all these different themes. And I'm like, how am I going to cover this in 30 minutes? And then I realized I don't have to. I can weave it into every single sermon that we preach. But to grasp it today, to get this foundation, I organized them into two broad categories. Okay, in summary... When the book of Proverbs talks about the fear of the Lord, it's dealing with the proper relation to God, which, which by that I mean our attitude and our posture towards him, and the proper response to God, which is our actions in response to who he is. Those themes fit with the rest of scripture as well. Deuteronomy 10 explains that the fear of the Lord is connected to loving and serving and obeying. And then in Acts 9, so we go Old Testament and the New Testament, it says that the church grew in the fear of the Lord and then they were comforted. And so it's this weird paradox when we think about the fear of the Lord. It's not just a key theme in Proverbs. It's all throughout the Bible. And so I want to look at those categories today to give us this foundation for Proverbs, but also for our lives. All right, we need to understand the fear of the Lord. And so let's look first at the proper relation to God. In Proverbs 9.10, we read this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So notice here that the fear of the Lord is connected to the knowledge of the Lord here. This is where we have to begin if we're going to properly understand who God is and have the proper relationship to him. If we're going to have that proper posture, we need to recognize that he is in an altogether different category than us. Right? And we, we affirm that, right? We affirm that on paper, 
but we don't often wrestle with it in our hearts and minds. We don't, we don't often actually think it through and think through its implications of what that means. He is in an altogether different category than you. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He is everywhere at once. He is infinitely holy, and he is pure and just. We have to get that. We need to recognize that he is the eternal creator and sustainer of all things. And we also need to recognize that he is the king, and we are not. That he is the judge of all the earth, and we are not. And so in some sense, it's really obvious why we would fear the Lord, especially unbelievers, those who don't believe the gospel, why they would fear the Lord. They are guilty rebels who deserve God's just and holy wrath. And so there is this dread and there is this terror at the thought of God. I mean, if that's God and he's in control and he's perfectly holy and he always punishes sin, then we have a lot to be afraid of. And so it makes sense there. But the Bible is filled with commands for believers to fear God. For believers, those who have recognized their sinner, they are a sinner separate from God. They've repented and they've trusted in Jesus. They've been forgiven. And now the Bible says there's no condemnation for them. And yet it says we should fear the Lord. And so what is going on here? I thought fear was a bad thing. Doesn't perfect love cast out fear? And this is where it's crucial that we distinguish between being afraid of God. That's where the unbeliever is. We need to distinguish between being afraid of God And fearing God. As believers, we should not be afraid of God, but we should fear God. Now, to help you with this distinction, I want to read something from Exodus 20. This is when the people of God in the Old Testament, they were receiving the law at Mount Sinai. It was a terrifying scene. And it says this in Exodus 20. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid. It says they were afraid and they trembled. And you're like, I understand that. If I'm at a mountain and there's thunder and lightning and smoke and blasts of a trumpet, I'm going to be afraid. But listen to what Moses says to the people. He says, do not fear. For God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. Now, what in the world are you talking about, Moses? He comes to this people, they're trembling, they're afraid, they're terrified, they're in dread. And Moses says, do not fear so that the fear of God may be upon you. So clearly there's a distinction here between being afraid of God and fearing God. It seems strange, but what is going on here is that fearing God is a right fear that drives us toward him, while being afraid of God is a sinful fear that makes us run away from him. And that's the distinction that we see in Scripture. That's why other passages in Scripture equate loving God with fearing God. Michael Reeves comments, True fear of God is true love for God defined. It is the right response to God's full-orbed revelation of himself in all of his grace and in all of his glory. In summary, this right fear is a trembling wonder before God. It is an awe-filled love. It's an ecstatic quaking. It's tremoring and delight as we consider his perfections. It's coming before God as this consuming fire, this inexpressible light, this holy creator and sustainer of all things. And it's falling on our faces before him, trembling in awe and wonder and fear, being overwhelmed by who he is. But at the same time in his presence, there's this warmth welling up. There's this 
peace. There's this joy that we can't understand as we, as we bow before greatness. And that's going to happen one day in glory. And right now, our fears right now, they're doled by the sinful things of this world. But when we go before him one day, that's what it's going to be like. It's going to be this paradox of trembling and rejoicing, but also full of peace and full of joy in his presence. C.S. Lewis tried to capture this in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And since there's kids with us today, I would recommend you kids read that book. It's a great book. If you can't read yet, ask your parents to read the book to you because parents, this would help you as well. It's a, it's a great little story. But in the book, these children enter this fantasy world through a wardrobe and they come across all these characters that are meant to represent biblical truths. And in the book, Jesus is represented as this great lion named Aslan. And the first time the guide mentions the name of Aslan, we're told that each of the children felt an overwhelming sense of emotion well up within them. Something inside them seemed to jump. And so they asked the guide, his name is Mr. Beaver, if you're wondering. They asked him, Mr. Beaver, is, is Aslan safe? And Mr. Beaver answers, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. You see, there is nothing safe or domesticated about our God. As Reeves pointed out, he is inexpressibly tremendous and fascinating. He is majestic. He is a consuming fire whose splendor causes dread in sinners and delight in saints. And so he's certainly not safe, but he's good. And that's the paradox of those who know God, those who have believed in Jesus Christ, those who have taken refuge within God, the only escape from the dread of sin. In light of all this, we should think of fearing God as not one extra way in which we serve him. Okay, if you don't get anything out of this, you should get this today. This, I think, will really help you grasp this. Okay, when we think of fearing God, at least this is how I thought about it for a long time, and studying it, this really helped kind of fill this in for me. I thought of, I should love him, I should delight in him, I should worship him, oh, and I should fear him too. But that's not how the scripture talks about fearing God. Instead, we should think of fearing God as the way in which we do all of those other things. We should love him with a trembling love. We should delight in him with an ecstatic joy. We should worship him with an overwhelming awe. John Bunyan, an old pastor, said that fearing God is the Christian's highest duty. And because of this, we should think of it like salt that seasons all the rest of our duties. In other words, you can't love God rightly if you don't fear him rightly. And you can't delight in God rightly if it's not a trembling delight. This is our posture before God. It's how we relate to him as creator, sustainer, king, and father. He's not safe, but he's good. And so as we come before him trembling, we're also rejoicing. As we come before him in awe, in, in his wonder, and his beauty, and his glory, and his awesomeness, there's this, also this, this peace that overwhelms us because he's also our father. That's what it means to fear him. It's having a proper relation before him. And this knowledge of God must lead to humility in our lives. This is why Proverbs regularly connects fearing God to being humble. For example, Proverbs 15.33 says, The fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom, and humility comes before honor. And then Proverbs 22.4 seems to use humility and the fear of the Lord as synonyms. Okay, and so the proper relation to God must include the proper knowledge of who he is, but also the proper knowledge of who we are in light of who he is. You need to know that he is God and that you are not. He is the creator and you are the created. Some of you have pets at home. 
And so I want you to think about, in a, in a far more infinite sense, the difference between you and your dog. Okay, Your dog is not your owner. right? Your dog looks to you for every single thing. Your dog needs you for food, for water, for love, for all these things. Your dog needs you to even go the, to the restroom. right? Like your, your dog is completely dependent on you. Now, cats don't have very good theology. Cats think they are God, and so they, they do think that they're in charge of you, but they, they just don't get it. If you have a cat, do yourself a favor and just get rid of it. All right? um, but but dogs, dogs provide a good illustration for us here. And that they show us, okay, the dog, man, they are completely dependent on me. That's what we are, but in a far more infinite sense to our creator. We are utterly dependent on God for everything. You need to know that you are dependent on him for every single thing in your life. That You have limited knowledge, limited resources, limited abilities, and a lot of blind spots. If you don't understand that, then you will never grow in the fear of the Lord and in wisdom. C.S. Lewis helped us again here when he said this. In God... You come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. <laughs> I want you to think about that. In every category, he's immeasurably superior. Unless you know God as that, and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. And so humility is essential in our relation to God. Yes, we're in awe of who he is and, and we're just captivated by his wonder and we love him with this trembling love. But, it, but if that doesn't lead to actual humility in our lives, then those are just words that we say. It, we can check all those boxes and we can say amen to all of that and we can say God is glorious and I want to fall on my face before him. But if we're not actually on our face before him, if we're not actually living humbly before him, then we don't fear the Lord. We don't have a right relation to him. You are a creature, but you're also a sinner, which means apart from God's grace in Christ, you deserve wrath, hell, and condemnation. To have an accurate view of yourself is that you are weak, limited, and that the only thing you ever earned is hell. And I say this because we need this proper understanding of ourselves if we're going to properly understand God. Derek Kidner again summarizes this. He says, wisdom is not merely a right method of thought, but a right relation, a worshiping submission to the God of the covenant who has revealed himself by name. You want to be wise? Then you must have a proper relation to God. In humility, you must rejoice and tremble in his presence. You must grow in your knowledge of him and you must let that knowledge produce that deep humility in your heart and life. That's the proper relation to God. But next, let's look at the proper response. This relation, if it's a true relation that leads to humility, is going to flow out in our lives with trust and obedience. Here's another definition for you by, by C. Bridges. He says this, The fear of the Lord is that affectionate reverence by which the child of God bends himself humbly and carefully to his father's law. And so this, this knowledge of God that leads to humility in our own lives leads to trusting him and it leads to obeying him. It has to be that way. You have to have that full-orbed understanding of the fear of the Lord. We have to trust him and do what he says to do. In Proverbs 14, 26, it says, In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence, and as his children, they will have refuge. So this has the idea of trusting him, finding him our refuge. Okay, We put our confidence in him. We run to him. This is seen even more clearly in Proverbs 3, which we read earlier. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. Okay, so 
You're going to do that because you understood in chapter one what the fear of the Lord is. Okay, we're going to trust him. If it's true what we just looked at in him and all of his glory and all of his grace, then I'm going to trust him. I'm not going to lean on my own understanding with limited knowledge and limited resources and limited perspective. I need someone else to help me. I am not wise in my own. And then verse six says, in all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. So don't just acknowledge him in the things that you do that are spiritual in your mind. Acknowledge him in every single category of your life. That's where wisdom is found. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So we've got to trust him, but then we've also got to obey him. If you truly know God, you've humbled yourself before him and you're trusting him, then you will do what he says to do. In Proverbs 8, 13, we read this, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. And Proverbs 10, 27 says, the fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be short. So notice how both of these verses seem to parallel or combine righteous living with fearing God. So in other words, you do what he says to do. You submit to his word. You hate evil. You pursue righteousness because of who he is and what he's done. This is connected to that last point, because if you trust the Lord, if you really believe he is who he says he is, then you'll do what he says to do. And you'll recognize that his path is better. His way is where wisdom is found. And what you'll do is you'll say, I, I'm not going to listen to the culture and what it says about these categories. I'm going to listen to God because I fear God. I'm not going to listen to my own deceitful and deceptive heart about these things. Because the, the Bible says my heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. So I'm not going to listen to my heart. I'm going to fear God and listen to him. I'm not going to listen to what peers and friends and, and, and the people on the news and, and all of the different voices in our culture. Instead, I'm going to fear God. I'm going to let his word shape how I live my life. And so as we go through Proverbs and we start to take these case studies on the family and on relationships and on our hearts and on our speech and on all these different categories, what we need to understand is that the fear of the Lord has to be foundational if we're going to truly be wise in those areas. We've got to get this. Okay. In summary, the fear of the Lord includes a right relation to God and a right response to God. When we fear God, we seek to know him, live humbly before him, trust him, and obey him. If we were to summarize the proper relation to God, it's this. In humility, we rejoice and tremble. And if we were to summarize the proper response to God, it would be this. In submission, we trust and obey. Rejoice and tremble, trust and obey. In the introduction, I said that our fears have made us foolish and fretful. But there's a greater fear that makes us wise. And I hope by now you can see that this is true. Not just from the scriptures, but from personal experience, from just turning on the news for five minutes. I think it's easy to see where the, the lack of the fear of the Lord has brought us as a society. We are more confused today about money, sex, relationships, and more than we've ever been. And it's led to this heartbreaking moral catastrophe in our culture because they've abandoned the foundation of wisdom and knowledge, which is the fear of God. Some of you watch the television and you see the news headlines and you're just baffled by it. Like, who, who in their right mind would ever think something like that? They're not in their right mind. They abandon the fear of the Lord. That's the foundation of wisdom and knowledge. And it's the moment they walked away from that, they walked away from true wisdom and knowledge. Which is why you can look at something as a Christian and you're not infinitely wise. You, you're in humility, keeping in mind that you have limited resources. But you can look at things and be like, that doesn't even make sense. That's not even two plus two equals four. What is going on here? They've abandoned the fear of the Lord. And so honestly, as I, as I considered this this past 
few weeks, I was a little bit depressed. Like, what are we going to do in our culture that has completely abandoned the fear of the Lord? There's no wisdom. There's no knowledge. Then I remembered the cross. And that's the only place that we can find hope. In the darkness of this moral catastrophe, this confusion, this lack of wisdom, this lack of knowledge in our own lives and in our culture. The hope is not found in more medication, more education, more technology. We know that doesn't work. And it's certainly not found in politicians. I hope you know that. It's found in a person, and his name is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the wisdom of God, pursued us in our sinful foolishness and fear. He showed us what it means to live wisely with a healthy and happy fear of God. And he was more than an example. He was our substitute. Becoming our wisdom. Becoming our righteousness. Living on our behalf. But there's more. He went to the cross to die for our sins and absorb the wrath of God that we deserve. And on that cross, we see God in all of his glory. We see his wisdom. We see his justice. We see his holiness. We see his wrath. We see his grace. We see his mercy. We see his patience. We see his love. All of the attributes climax at the cross of Jesus Christ. And and if you want to be wise, if you want to grow in the fear of the Lord, If you want to grow in humility, you need to stare at the cross. You need to see the full-orbed glory of God on display and let that lead you to rejoice and tremble in his presence. Ray Ortland put it this way. If you would like to experience God with that humility, here's how you can. You look at the cross. You see a wise man hanging there, dying in the place of fools like you because he loves you. You may despise him, but he does not despise you. You may think that you're above him, but he humbled himself before you. Look at him. Look away from yourself. Look at him and keep looking until your pride melts. You will not only worship, you will begin to grow wise. You see, it's only growing, it's only in growing and understanding the gospel that we'll have this proper relation and this proper response to God. And so this is what I want to leave you with. And this is foundational for the whole book true wisdom begins with trembling wonder that's where wisdom is found you want to grow in wisdom then grow in trembling wonder as you look at wisdom himself dying on the cross for your sins stand there in awe-filled wonder of him rejoice and tremble at the thought of it were you there when they crucified my lord were you there when they nailed him to the cross oh sometimes it causes me to tremble Tremble, tremble. When we look at the cross, we're, we're still in awe of him. We're still in wonder at him. We're still trembling at the thought of who he is. We still recognize that he has absolute sovereign reign and rule over every aspect of every moment. But instead of running away from him in fear, we run to him in fear. We understand that apart from his grace, we are doomed for all eternity. But it's in his presence that there is refuge. There is forgiveness. There is peace. We find that there at the cross. And so we need to look at the cross if we're going to understand the fear of the Lord and wisdom. When we stare at the cross of Jesus Christ, that's where we find refuge, we find grace, and we find wisdom. True wisdom begins with trembling wonder. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we need your help with this. Lord, we can look at the culture all we want and be discouraged and depressed, but Lord, I pray today by your spirit we would hold up a mirror. 
And we look at our own lives and how bankrupt they are at times because we don't fear you. God, I'm a pastor, and as I studied this this past week, I was so humbled and, and broken over my lack of fear. We just don't fear you anymore. We don't understand that full orb rejoicing and trembling in your presence, and so, God, we're desperate for your help. God, I ask your Holy Spirit right now to light a flame of that happy and healthy fear of the Lord in our hearts this morning. I pray that those who are here that don't know you are more in terror of you and dread of you than they are properly fearing you. I pray that you would give them a new heart and draw them to yourself and they would have this proper relation and proper response. God, help us. We need your help. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.